So this morning we're looking at how we may see Christ in uh, these opening chapters of Genesis. When the risen Jesus uh, was talking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, he opened up the scriptures to them and we're told that he began with Moses and that's what we'll do today. Um, Moses, uh, in that context, doesn't refer to the man Moses but to the books uh, that were written by him and given to Israel, the first five books of the Bible. So, while Genesis makes no mention of Moses, it's as much a book of Moses as is the book of Exodus and uh, the following books. So, where do we see Christ in the opening chapters of Genesis? I, I think maybe Christians today can struggle to see Christ in those chapters for maybe a couple of reasons. One uh, comes from the influence of a progressive or liberal approach to the Bible and the other comes from the other end of the spectrum from a very narrow or fundamentalist reading of the Bible. Let me explain. The progressive understanding or reading of the Bible is based on the view that the Old Testament writers who were separated by centuries from the New Testament times and from the events of Jesus, this view says that they wrote down mythological stories, stories that evolved over time uh, within their culture or which they borrowed from other cultures around them. This view sees these stories as much like the Aboriginal dream time, stories that try to give an explanation of why things are the way they are, why the world is the way we experience it, but aren't necessarily meant to be factual stories. This view says they don't need to be true for us to still learn some valuable lessons from them. It says that it's wrong for Christians to read back into the Old Testament our own Christian ideas or to treat the Old Testament as if it's inspired by God and it rejects any notion that God has sovereignly been working out his purpose from day one, his plan for creation and revealing that purpose step by step. I experienced this view myself when I studied theology at university. I was often marked down for mentioning Jesus in my Old Testament essays. Now, I imagine many, if not all here, might immediately reject that view of the Bible and so we should. But we need to be conscious that this view is is a common view within scholarship and academia today and from time to time it will influence maybe the books that we read or the, the popular views of the Bible stories. On the other hand, the, uh, what we would, could call the fundamentalist reading of the Bible is it's like a knee-jerk reaction to the progressive view. It, it, it swings the pe- pendulum right to the other, other side. It wants to strongly emphasise the historicity of the Bible and rightly so. But often 
the emphasis is so strong that its sole focus is just on trying to prove that the events in the Bible actually happened. And so this view can sometimes overlook all the different uh, literary styles and types of literature that are in the Bible and uh, can read uh, parts of the Bible that are written in a poetic or a symbolic way in a very literalistic kind of way. And in doing so, it, it misses the symbolism that God has deliberately put in the passage. So, for example, in reading the opening chapters of Genesis... The focus of a fundamentalist might be just to think about the scientific and the archaeological evidence for creation and the flood rather than on the theological significance of how it's written and why it was written and what God is wanting to tell us about himself through them. So what we need then is what we could call an evangelical reading of the Bible. The evangel is the gospel. An evangelical person is a person who believes and bases their life on the good news of Jesus, who sees that Jesus is uh, the key to life and faith. And then also Jesus then is the key to reading and understanding the Bible including these first chapters of Genesis. So last week I introduced the three P's, three ways in which we can see Christ in the Bible. He's promised, he's patterned and he's present. So let's look at how this can help us see Christ in Genesis 1 to 3. Firstly, we see him promised. Last week I mentioned 3 verse 15 that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. This verse is known as the proto-evangelium. You hear that word evangel in there. It means the very first time both in the Bible but also in history, that the gospel is proclaimed. Now the context in which this promise comes is important for us to see. We need to see that it is a word of judgment directed firstly to the serpent. It's not given explicitly as a word of hope to the man and the woman. And this is really important for us to see this context. Not just the fact that it's a word of judgment, but the fact that it, it is a serpent, a snake, who did the tempting and therefore receives this judgment. See, this word, this judgment is given in light of the original design, the original mandate for humanity to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, what we see in Genesis 3 is one of those living things that moves on the earth 
seeking to subdue and have dominion over human beings, trying to take the place of God, giving them another word to hear and obey. Now whether it was Satan possessing a snake or whether it was Satan taking the form of a snake or something else, we don't we can't say for sure, but what we can say is that by him coming to them as a snake, he was deliberately upsetting the creational order in which human beings under God were supposed to rule over creation. So the good news embedded in this word of judgment upon Satan is that he will be thrown down from his claimed place as ruler over humanity and the world and humanity will be restored as rulers as originally designed. At the cross, as Satan launched against Jesus all of his anger, his animosity through the rage of those who crucified him, it seemed that to all outward appearances that Jesus was defeated, that he was killed by the venom of the serpent's attack. The one who was proclaimed to be Messiah and King appeared to be defeated by earthly and spiritual authorities. But from the perspective of God, this was the Father's plan from the very beginning. Jesus willingly and in obedience to the Father went to that place, to the place where he faced the complete hostility and violence of an angry human race who has listened to the word of the serpent instead of the word of the Father. He knows what it's like to suffer unjustly at the hands of evil people. He knows the pain and the shame of rejection and ridicule of anger and violence from those to whom he's only ever expressed pure love. He knows all about the curse of sin that's distorted and corrupted men and women because at the cross he became a curse for us. And by dealing with our sin, he then robbed Satan, the serpent, of his most deadly weapon, accusation. So by outward appearance, the king had been defeated as the serpent struck his heel, his Achilles heel. But in fact, Jesus was in the process of crushing the serpent's head with the same heel. It's a common image in the Bible of a king having those over whom he rules or those whom he's defeated under his feet. Psalm 8 verse 8. Again, I mistyped and put in the wrong verse. This should be 8 verse 6. It says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Speaking of humanity there. That was the design, the plan for human beings. That's the creational role that Satan 
try to undo. But then Jesus said just before his death, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See how Jesus' death being lifted up on the cross will not only be an act of salvation for all people, but also an act of judgment on Satan. Here's how it's portrayed in Revelation. And that great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Now that we've seen how this promise applies to Christ, we're in a position to see how it applies to us through him. See how in this passage we in Christ have victory over Satan, not by any strength or power on our part, but through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Now our testimony is not our own personal story of coming to faith. That may be part of it. We testify to who Jesus is and what he has done. Just as in a court, a witness is summoned not to talk about themselves, but to talk about the person who's standing trial. So the word of our testimony is the word we give about the salvation that has been accomplished by the Lamb who was slain, of which we're the beneficiaries. So don't ever think that you don't have a great testimony if you grew up in a Christian home or you don't have a spectacular conversion because your testimony isn't about you. Anyone who knows Christ as their saviour has just as much a spectacular, powerful testimony as any other Christian because we testify to Christ. This helps us then understand what Paul meant when he said at the end of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. When Jesus, as the offspring of the woman, crushed the head of Satan at the cross, he did so as our substitute in our place, but also as our representative on our behalf. His victory is our victory. In light of the cross and the resurrection, we can now live in view of the coming day when all of Satan's work will eventually be brought to an end.
Well, how is Jesus patterned in this story of the creation and the fall? Well, one obvious way is what God does next. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first creature to physically die wasn't a human being but an animal providing skins for their covering. Now God had warned Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree you shall surely die. Now we might say that Adam and Eve did die in a spiritual sense when they ate. They were cut off from God. We might say that their bodies became subject to death and from that moment on began to age and deteriorate and take them unavoidably towards the grave. This uh, spiritual death was manifested in shame when their attention was drawn to their own nakedness and they tried to deal with that shame by sewing together leaves. Obviously it didn't work because when the Lord God appeared they were still naked. Now those things are true. There was a spiritual death that came at that time but we need to see also that God's first action after declaring the curse of judgment upon their sin was this act of grace and mercy towards them. He provided another creature's death, physical death, in their place. He provided a covering for their shame. God's mercy triumphed over judgment. An act of grace replaced that word that demanded instant justice. This is something that echoes throughout the scriptures. God said he would wipe out all of humanity with the flood. But there was mercy and he saved Adam and his family and through him the whole human race. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah but saved Lot and his family. When Jonah told the people of Nineveh that they would be destroyed in 40 days, he then withheld that destruction when they repented. This animal that was killed to provide skins, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus who takes away the shame of our sin. He shows us the folly of our own attempts to deal with our shame ourselves and he provides new clothing of his righteousness, his immortality. The cross pronounces the just judgment of every person who has ever sinned, which is every person, yet it's through the cross that we're saved. There's another pattern of Christ in Eden and it's picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 5. If you're there Friday night, this will ring a bell. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type type of one who was to come, meaning Jesus. We see this in two ways. Adam, the pattern for Christ. Firstly, the way in which Paul uses it here in Romans. Adam, in Adam what we see is one man's action bringing bad consequences for everyone who is in him everyone who is united to him in their common humanity. Adam was what theologians call our federal head. Just as the federal government, led by the Prime Minister, speaks and acts on behalf of all Australians, even if we don't always like, maybe, what they say or do, so Adam spoke and acted on our behalf. What happened to him also happens to us. So we too are sinners. We too are subject to death and condemnation. This image of one man on our behalf points us to Jesus. One man, the last Adam, by one act of righteousness a life of obedience culminating in the cross brings consequences, good consequences for everyone who is in him, everyone who is united to him, not by the flesh, but through faith. This is such an important idea that uh, this comparison between Adam and Christ occurs eight times just in this short passage in Romans 5. Paul doesn't say it just once, he says it many times over with different wordings to make sure we don't miss it. Now do you struggle to accept this idea called original sin that through the one man Adam we are all made sinners? Sounds unfair that we should be blamed and punished for what someone else did so long ago. But did you notice how verse 12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We've proven ourselves worthy of being represented by Adam and for the sinfulness of Adam to be imputed to us, to be credited to our account. If any of us were in Adam's shoes, we would have done exactly as he did and we prove it every time we sin. We're fully accountable for our own sin. So we should have no problem being told that we're all in Adam. And if we can't accept Adam's sinfulness being imputed to us, then we have no right to claim the righteousness of Christ 
to be imputed to us also through faith. We must accept the bad news truth patterned in Adam's sin if we're to accept the good news truth made a reality in Jesus, in the the gift of blood-bought righteousness. We see Adam pattern, uh, we see uh, Jesus patterned by Adam in another way in Genesis 1 and 2. If we go back to before his sin, we're told that Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. Now there's more to the, being the, in the image of God than being like God in some way, that's certainly there but bound up in this terminology of image is the idea of sonship with sonship comes a likeness but with it also comes authority with it comes responsibility to act on behalf of the father Adam is described as a son of God. And Adam in Eden was a priestly king. Eden was the first temple. It was a walled garden in which the Lord was present, walking with them in the cool of the day, as we'll look at in a moment. Adam's job was to work it and keep it. It's the same words that are used to describe the priests and Levites doing their job in the tabernacle. Adam and Eve were like cherubim. Their job was to guard the garden, to make sure that no creature came into the garden except through them. As they were fruitful and as they multiplied and filled the earth, the growing human race were then to be conveyors, to be mediators of the glory of God to all of creation with the goal that the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Hosea tells us. So to be made in the image of God is to be a son of God, to be on about the Father's business. See how Colossians 1 describes Jesus as the Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Now see how verses 16 and 17 speak of his divinity as God the Son. 
And then verses 18 to 20 speak of his humanity as the Messiah and the Saviour. But in both of these, he is the image of the invisible God. So as the, as the Son, he is the perfect image of the Father. And as the Messiah, as the last Adam, he's the perfect human image of God. If you want to know what it means for a human being to be made in the image of God, what it looks like, uh, don't compare or contrast us with animals to try and work that out. You just need to look at Jesus and you'll see what it means for a human being to be perfectly in the image of God. What this means is we need to reorient our thinking about how we think about the relationship between the creation of Adam and the incarnation, the becoming human of Jesus. It wasn't Adam who came first. Sure, he was the first chronologically in history, but the image of God was already there. It was already there personally in the Son. For all eternity, he has been the perfect reflection of the Father. Not only that, but the plan for the Son to step into human history and become that perfect mediator between God and humanity, to to create a union so strong that would be unbreakable, that plan was already in place. Hypothetically, if humanity had never sinned, the Son would still have come and taken our flesh and blood because the ultimate goal of him coming wasn't to die on the cross. That was a means to an end. The goal of all that he does is our adoption into God's family as his adopted children. So to put it another way, the reason why Adam was made the way he was, a human being made in the image of God, was in anticipation of Jesus. Adam was designed the way he was, a a dusty, fleshy creature that bore the image of God because that was the perfect prototype or the perfect pattern for when the Son would take flesh and would be the perfect mediator, the perfect image. Finally, how do we see Christ actually present in Genesis 1 to 3? Well, firstly, as I again mentioned briefly last week, the sun was present from the very first moment of creation. God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, we should consider that not so much as God speaking into nothing and making something appear like a magician waving their wand and saying abracadabra and something suddenly appears. We should read it as a conversation between the three members of the Trinity. The Spirit was there 
hovering over the unformed face of the waters. Then the Father spoke to the Son, let there be light. Instantaneously then the Son, who loves nothing more than doing his Father's will, sprang into action and in unison with the Spirit brought about light and then separated it from the darkness and called it day. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was the one who separated light from darkness. The Son is called the Word because whenever and wherever the Father speaks, the Son's always there doing the Father's will. The the Father's Word and the Son are so inseparable that the Son is the Word. So every time we read, and God said, we should picture this conversation between father and son. That's why in 126, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. As God comes to the pinnacle of his creation, as he makes humanity this Trinitarian conversation becomes explicit. So Christ was present there from the very beginning. Secondly, though, we see in 3 verse 8 that the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, that phrase, cool of the day, is literally the spirit of the day. It's the same word used for spirit. The experience of the the cool breeze coming in off the Mediterranean, like we experience it here in Adelaide, coming off the Gulf, bringing relief of the heat and the desert in summertime. For, For the biblical people, that was a reminder, an image of the refreshing, reviving work of the spirit. But not only only is there the presence, the symbolic presence of the Spirit there, but the Lord is described as walking in the garden in such a way that it made a sound. Was it the sound of footsteps? Was it the sound of the rustling of leaves? Whatever it was, it's a very physical way to describe the presence of God who is spirit and not physical. But I said last week, whenever we see the Lord revealing himself in the Old Testament to people in some kind of physical or or visible form, we should recognise that not as God in some vague general way, but of the Son. Making the presence of God known in a a tangible way. Adam and Eve's communion with the Father in Eden 
was through the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit, just as it is for us today. So in Genesis 3, we have the Son walking in the garden in anticipation of the day when he will literally walk with real fleshy feet. He walks in this first garden to confront the man and woman who have just sinned, who are hiding in fear and shame because of their sin. And he comes to bring the judgment that they deserve in anticipation of the day when as the the risen Messiah, he'll be appointed by the Father as the judge of the living and the dead. There's also a bit of pattern in here too. If we think of gardens, there are two gardens mentioned in the Gospels. The first is the Garden of Gethsemane. In that garden, Jesus walked with his disciples, but then prayed with great sorrow and anguish when he began to bear the guilt and the shame and the weight of our sin. So in that garden he walked not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Then, one more garden is mentioned, it's the garden that housed the tomb where his body was laid. Adam and Eve had been spared physical death in the Garden of Eden because on this second day, this day when Jesus would not be spared physical death, when by entering the tomb he would destroy death forever. So the son's presence in Eden has these kind of patterned illusions, a pattern of what's to come. It's not merely a pattern. It's not a mythological story told to us to teach us what we should be aspiring to. The son was real and living in Adam and Eve's experience. They knew full and free fellowship with him before they sinned. Now, did they know that their experience of the Lord would also be a pattern for us to understand what was to come down the track? Maybe, maybe not. They did know, however, that the Lord was real, that the blessings and promises of fruitfulness were real, that they were created to glorify him and to enjoy him and to find delight in knowing him and obeying his commands. The solid reality of Christ's actual presence in an actual garden with an actual Adam and Eve mean that our faith isn't grounded just on ideals or philosophies or good moral lessons. No, our faith is grounded in reality, in the historical truth of God at work in his creation to bring about his purposes, to bring all things to the goal that he has for us. Because the presence of the Son in Eden was real, so our hope in Christ is also real. The new heavens and the new earth for which we hope for isn't just pie in the sky when we die. 
there will be a new creation as solid and real as this one. And the presence of God in all of his fullness will be just as real, just as solid as it was in Eden. We will know the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden by the power of the Spirit. But unlike Adam and Eve, we won't hide from his presence because there'll be no fear, there'll be no shame, no regret, there'll be no more judgment. Devil, the serpent will be banished, the cherubim's flaming sword will be extinguished, the tree of life will be fully available and God will dwell with us forever. Let's pray.